0: Let's pray together this morning for a moment, shall we? Father, we come before you today. We have just sung to one another about afflictions, and we are mindful this morning of our brothers and sisters who are a part of our congregation and a part of our community who are struggling. Lord, we ask that you would show mercy this morning to our friends and our neighbors who are. Uh, bearing the weight of the deluge of water that we have received in the last couple of days. There are um, flooded cars and flooded basements and water-damaged roads. And uh, these difficulties, they, they come upon us. And I, I just pray for your mercy and your kindness. Uh, give us eyes to see them and strength to help as is an opportunity before us. Lord, we pray this morning for Don and Sandy LeMaster. We are thankful to you for them. Lord, Don is uh, finishing his race. And we know that it is his desire to finish well with faith in the Lord Jesus. Confidence in your presence and in your peace. And I do pray that you would grant this desire to Don. We pray for Sandy that you would sustain her as she seeks to care for her husband. Lord, we're thankful to you for Jean Bachman and her recovery from her surgery that is going well. Lord, we do uh, look forward to, with joy, the time that she'll be able to worship with us again as she continues to recover. Lord, uh, Cindy Smith is is recovering as well. Charlie Reynolds is facing a a variety of tests as they try to determine what's wrong with him. Our dear sister Mary Heisey is not with us this morning because of the congestive heart failure that has laid her low this week. Lord, uh, we sang it repeatedly, uh, fulfill your word, your promises we pray, that as the days of these suffering ones, as they endure, we pray that, your, that their strength would match their days, and that you would do that through the power of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, now as we turn to your word, we pray that as we look into it, you would give us ears to hear We pray, Father, that you would use your word in our lives this morning to um, move us to worship, to, to steer us away from temptation, to calm the anxiousness and the worries that we bear, to fill us with joy, to light the path that is before us, to make us wise, to rebuke our foolishness and our sinfulness. This is what you do with your word in our lives. And as we look to it, We come to you first, and we ask that you, by your Spirit, would speak to us through it. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. So this morning, I want to talk to you about how you know you love someone. Uh, That is, how you can know that you truly love another human being. And, and uh, I want to come at this issue with a wide-angle view. It's uh, not as easy to figure out as you might think. I was speaking to my father about this this week, and uh, he said that um, love, and, uh, there's, uh, love and stomach aches have something in common. They're hard to describe, but you both know when you have it, right? Have, know when you have both of them. A wide-angle lens. Some of you... Are in dating relationships, and you wonder if this romance will culminate in marriage. How do you know this relationship is ready to blossom into a lifelong commitment? That's one angle. Others of you are already in that lifelong commitment, and we should be honest that it is easy to be lazy in that covenant of marriage. Uh, It's not easy to continue the things that you did to win your spouse once you have gained the prize. It's actually very simple. You don't have to work at all to let resentments and disappointments accumulate. So are you really loving your spouse? My lens, though, is uh, wider this morning than just romantic relationships. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We who are brothers and sisters in Christ are called to love one another. Do you love the members of your growth group? Uh, Do you love the kids that are in your Awana club? Do you love the fellow members of uh, Pyro that you meet with on Sunday nights? Do you love the members of your summer Bible study? Uh, My hope this morning is to uh, get an answer to those questions about love, but in order to do so, we're going to take a step back. We're going to step back a few feet. Actually, we're going to step back a few thousand years, uh, maybe more than that. I want to step back all the way to eternity past before there was anything except God himself. And the reason that I want to step back that far is because I believe, and I hope to show you this, that love itself, the love that manifests itself in romance and in friendship and in families and in churches, is rooted ultimately in the triune God. Love is rooted in God Himself, and indeed, I I want to argue, can only be rooted in God Himself. So this morning we're going to talk about the Trinity, It should not surprise you that we're going to start with the Trinity this morning. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that over the summer when I preach, we're going to walk through Grace's doctrinal statement. The doctrinal statement, of course, is a summary of what we believe as a church. It's not everything that we believe, but it contains what we believe in common so that we can function together as a local body of believers. Uh, walking through this, of course, our doctrinal statement is a departure from our normal practice. Our normal practice is to move systematically through books of the Bible, but we are walking systematically through these central truths of the Scripture. And my goal is to show you that uh, contrary to what a lot of people think when we talk about doctrine, um, these are not merely dull, divisive particularities, but these are reasons for worship and they're foundations of our fellowship. This tr- these truths are eminently practical. And today we're going to talk about the triune God as the fountain of true love. And uh, we're going to take three steps in order to get there. Before we start, though, I'd like to read our doctrinal statement. If you wouldn't mind, on the pink sheet, that's written there. Section number two is written there in italics, and we're going to read this together. Uh, this is section two of our doctrinal statement about the Trinity. So let's read this together, shall we? We believe in one personal living God, creator and sustainer of all things. He eternally exists in three persons: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are equal in nature, attributes, and perfections, executing distinct and harmonious roles in creation, providence, and redemption. The triune God is worthy of our worship, confidence, and obedience step number one here we go Christians learn what love is like from God's love Christians learn what God's what love is like from God's love this is not a controversial statement I don't think I even need to make a case for this but we have to at least start here so let's start I want to show you two passages I'm going to be projecting verses we have a lot to go through I couldn't even fit them on the sheet so I'm going to project them here this morning and uh, let's see oh there they are Good. So uh, Ephesians five one and two. Look what it says. It says, "Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God." Now look at First John four seven. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Clearly, there's this direct connection in the Bible between God's love and our love for one another. But you knew that already. I'm not even sure (laughs) that you have to be a Christian in order to recognize that that makes sense. But where we stumble, I think, is in understanding how God's love differs from what comes naturally to us. The problem is that we're not very clear about what God's love is like. Uh, Jonathan Lehman wrote a book a few years ago called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. It's a very thick book. It's a very helpful book. He says that that God's love is both attractive and And offensive. And the reason we don't really grasp that is because we don't really understand what God's love is. Most people, Jonathan Lehman says, believe that love is God, not that God is love. Uh, He he, he says there's two words that summarize how our understanding of love is off track. uh, This corruption of love. And those two words are individualism and consumerism individualism and consumerism. By individualism, he, he means that we lead disconnected lives where at an increasing pace, uh, being cut off from one another. And in our individualism, what we're looking for is people who will complete us. We are alone as people and we want other people in our lives to come and, and complete us and satisfy us. Now, From a biblical perspective, we understand why, where this individualism comes from. We were created to have a relationship with God, but because of our rebellion, our sin against Him, uh, that relationship from God is severed. We no longer naturally relate to God as good father. Instead, we relate to Him as judge. He is judge, not good father. And uh, one of the consequences of that severed relationship with God is that we're cut off from one another. Uh, we have had this isolation for a long time, Uh, humanity has, almost since the very beginning. But, if we wanted to be advanced philosophers, the technological turn that has happened in the the modern age, our turn toward technology, has just made this worse, this isolation. We have social media friends that we visit every day alone in our rooms. Uh, We have thinner ties to our families and communities were increasingly isolated. Uh, When I was in junior high, the trustees in my church hired me. I was the official church lawnmower. And uh, in front of the church and behind the church, there was a long line of bridal veil spirea, and that plant grows a lot over the summer. And I used to trim it a lot with an electric trimmer. So I'd move back and forth and back and forth over the bushes all the time. And I am, I am careless and clumsy. I will admit that to you. And one day I was whipping the electric trimmer back, and it bit into the cord that was flying around, and shish, there was a spark, and then the electric trimmer died. It's a good thing Fred Straub isn't here to hear that illustration. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody tell him. Don't tell him. So there was a power connection to the electric trimmer and it was working fine until I cut the power and the electric trimmer died. Well, in a sense, we were created to have a relationship with God and a relationship with one another and sin has cut that connection. So we are isolated. And, and uh, now we are all cut cords looking for some source of power, someone who fill, will fill us with life again. Now, I want, to, I want to change the image a little bit, if I can, uh, because we're also consumers. So you can imagine that severed electrical cord. Let's put, let's put a socket on the end of that cord in your imagination. We are consumers looking for the best connection that we, we can. A plug. we we'll put a plug on the end of the cord. And I'm looking for a socket to plug in. Someone who will give me life. Do you have enough juice? Will you date me? Will you be my friend? Will you marry me? Will you satisfy me? And we go from relationship to relationship, to church to church, hobby to hobby, looking for something, someone to give us life, to give us some juice so that we don't feel so so disconnected, so isolated. And, and we evaluate people and churches and Jobs and hobbies on the basis of how they make us feel. And, and if I'm not getting enough juice from you, I'll just unplug and go find somebody else. Or something else. We're consumers. And under those conditions, life is, uh, love Rather, is not really about how I feel about you. Love becomes how you make me feel about myself. I, so I say, working under this individualism and consumerism, when I say to you, I love you, I'm not saying to you how I feel about you. I'm speaking about the fact that I appreciate how you make me feel about myself. Does that make sense? See, that self-centered nature of love in an individualistic and consumeristic society, this is not what God's love is like. God's love is our model, but it's also mysterious to us. Now let's move on to step two here. We're going to come back to God's love, but let's talk about step two. Step two, Christians learn about God's love from the Trinity. Followers of Christ learn about love from the Trinity. And now we're going to be thinking about who God is. And oh, we're on holy ground this morning. The scriptures teach us that that God is incomprehensible. Look at Isaiah 55, 8, and look what it says. Well, I didn't even write that passage down, but we'll read it anyway. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is incomprehensible to us. We only know what we know about Him as uh, He has revealed Himself to us, and He introduces us to Himself as the triune God. This is holy ground it is a bit of a minefield, too. There are multitude of ways to think unbiblically about the Trinity. Let's think about how, where this, this doctrine, how this doctrine has developed as we, have, we read the scriptures and we interpret them. The Trinity is a description of God formed from two indisputable proofs, uh, observations in the Bible. So there's two things that the Bible tells us that are absolutely true. And the word Trinity is... I know the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Someone will say that to you. Um, it, uh, the Trinity, word Trinity is not in the Bible, so why do you believe it? You don't, don't listen to that. Just tell those people to suck an egg or something, all right? Because... Don't do that. That's not very Christian, okay? Don't do that. But, but the word Trinity is just an effort to summarize these truths that are in the Bible. All right, and, and here they are. Truth number one. There is one God. The Bible teaches us there is one God. Truth number two. Three persons are identified as God in the scriptures. So there is one God and in the Bible three persons are described, are identified as God. Now some of you grammarians in the room might rather be more comfortable with the word people instead of persons. But persons is most accurate. It's in our doctrinal statement, persons. And it's in the song that we sang a few minutes ago, God in three persons. That's important. So uh, let's look at some scriptures here, these truths in the Bible. One God, all right? There's one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. Then James 2. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. There's one God. And then 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So there is one God. But in the Bible, three persons are identified as God. The Father is God. No one argues about this. But I'll show you this verse that Jesus... This is from Matthew chapter 6. Okay? The Father is God. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father, the Father, feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then later as he's continuing, he's talking about what God does. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So in this one passage, the Father and God. So he identifies the Father as God. All right, we'll move on to the Son, Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, your translation might say form, who being in the form of God. Well, that word form doesn't mean shape. That's how we use the word. It's the form, it's shape. The the Greek word that's translated form in some translations is is, does not mean shape, it means nature. So, in very nature, God, the Son, Christ Jesus, God, by very nature, text says, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So, the Father's God, the Son is God, and here the Holy Spirit in Acts. Peter is talking to some church members, some wayward church members. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied? to whom you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. You told us, you, 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 you made a promise that this is all the money you got from the land, but you, you, that's not, you didn't give all the money. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. Uh, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? You didn't have to give all the money. But you lied about it. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So the Holy Spirit here is identified as God. So there is one God and then three persons who are identified as God. And I, I, we could go through passage after passage where I could show this to you. Now, how is that not a contradiction? How is that not a contradiction? Is God one or is God three? And the answer to that question is yes. And the Bible speaks about them this way. The Bible is aware of this. Look at John 1, 1 and 2, verses many of you know. In the beginning was the Word. Okay? And the Word was with God. All right, We have two, the Word and God. And the Word was God. Now we have one. He was with God in the beginning. So he is God and he is with God. How does that work? That's a mystery. It's, It's more than just mathematical contradiction. All right? Now I'm going to show you a verse in the Old Testament. The Trinity is not as developed a doctrine in the Old Testament. Uh, and it is mysterious, except what's one of the wonderful things about several passages in the Old Testament is how they use, how the Old Testament writers, prophets, would use singular pronouns and plural pronouns in the same verse. Or singular verbs and plural verbs in the same verse. Look at Isaiah 6.8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. So whom shall I send, singular, and who shall go for us, plural? If you were a second grade English teacher, this would be bad grammar and excellent theology. right? So um, it, some people, well, in the Old Testament, God uses the plural of majesty. So when Queen Elizabeth speaks, she says, we, we, all the time. She speaks about herself in that term, we. Okay, if, if this is a plural of divine majesty, it should say, Whom shall we send, right? And who will go for us? But it says, Whom shall I send who will go for us? This is strange and unusual. It's not bad math. It's something that we're not used to. This is wholly different than anything that we can imagine. One God who eternally exists as three persons. He is one in in different ways than he is three. The earliest uh, Christians, as the New New Testament was being completed and, and collated, they spent a lot of time trying to work this out from the text, trying to describe the Trinity. Here are some of the things that they have said and written over those first 300 years. Members of the Trinity are distinct and not interchangeable. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Father can never be the Son, and the Son cannot be the Father. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. The doctrinal statement that we just read says, they're equal in nature, attributes, and perfections. They execute distinct and harmonious roles in creation, providence, and redemption. Trying to put these things together is where most of the analogies we have for the Trinity fail. The Trinity is not like an egg. Don't teach your children that the Trinity is like an egg. The shell, the white, and the yolk, but there's one egg. Okay, don't do that. Uh, the Trinity is not like water that can be ice and steam and liquid. Okay, That's, Don't use that one either. This is where the cultists fail. They, they don't attribute full deity to the Son or to the, the Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity share the same attributes... All that is true of the Father in His divine nature is also true of the Son and Spirit, but they are not identical to each other. Uh, these earliest uh, theologians used words like substance and essence and person, and those are great words, and we need people to, who use those words. Even more helpful, I think, is, well, at the prow of the ship, when we think about the Trinity, we should think about the ways that God Himself describes Himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. And here's where we're going to talk about love and the triune God. Take your Bibles. This is a long passage. You don't have it printed out. Take your Bibles and turn to me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to look at a scene that took place one day in the life of Jesus. John chapter 5 is where I want to direct your attention. And we're going to start reading at verse... John 5 verse 19. Nope, verse 16, sorry. John five sixteen, John five sixteen. So the text begins this way. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, well, what things was he doing? He was healing people. He was doing, performing miracles on the Sabbath. And Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work, To this very day, and I too am working. For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now listen. So Jesus could have very easily diffused this situation. So the Pharisees come and they say, You're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus could have very easily gone after their definition of work. And he could have said to them, Come on, boys. Working? Working? I'm not working. I'm not a doctor. This is not a doctor's office. They haven't made appointments with me. They're not paying me for healing them, for 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 administering medicine. I'm not making a living doing this. I'm clearly not in any sense of the way you think about work, working. He could have diffused the situation that way. That's not what he does. He raises the temperature of the discussion immensely by claiming to have this relationship with God. It, he, he calls God his Father, making himself equal with God. He didn't lower the temperature of the discussion. He raised it tenfold. And now he gives this description of his relationship that he has with the Father. The Trinity is a doctrine in some senses that we overhear. We, we hear the Father and the Son and the Spirit in their interaction in the next room. And, and we learn from their interaction with one another. And, and look at this here. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, and He will show Him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so even, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Here's this description of this relationship between the Father and Son, and it's a relationship of love. It's love that manifests itself in showing and in sharing. When you think about the Trinity, you should think about this this father-son relationship. And, and you should be able to understand this quite easily, I think. Uh, my father-in-law is, is uh, very skilled in using his hands. He's very skilled in repairing things. He is very skilled in using his hands and he's very patient. He can, uh, for a long time, sit and work with a machine or work with something to make it, it work perfectly. He fixes things. He's very skilled. He's very patient. Two things that I am not. So when my in-laws uh, come to visit, it is often the case, my, um, his, his, the tool, toolbox that he brings is the same size as his suitcase. And, and he, he, there are things around the house, uh, in our car, places that he fixes. Sometimes he fixes things I didn't even know were broken. And, and, and when he fixes things, he has this, now this morning I'm going to confess to you that I am a which you know, I'm an ingrate and a fool. Okay, so, so my father-in-law, he has this annoying habit when he fixes things that he wants to show me what he fixed and how he fixed it. So he'll, he'll say, come, come on, come on, come on, look at this. Look, look, at, look at this. And he shows me some machine or some piece of something, and he says, you see what I did? I took this 32nd, 8-inch thing, and I screwed this and fixed it. And I stand there, and I'm, I'm happy, but I, thoughts go through my mind when I'm standing there. They're not, they're not righteous. I think to myself, well, if you just fixed it, why do I need to know how? And then I think to myself, okay, it'll be a while before, before it breaks again because you just fixed it. And I'll forget what you're showing me by the time that it breaks again. This is not going to go well. My hope, my great hope when anything breaks in the house is that somehow if it breaks by itself, maybe it will be fixed by itself. That's my great hope (laughs) when things happen. But my father, because he's a good father-in-law, wants to show me things. He wants to help me. And he wants to share with me in the the process of of fixing these things. If I was a wiser son-in-law, I would appreciate that. Do, do, you, you know what this is like right uh, uh, sharing these things with your children um, teaching teaching your children some of you mothers in particular you love show your daughters how to make a perfect pie crust or to fix the grandma's recipe that's been in the family for a long time there's just, there's just joy in in that sharing there's this just comes to mind i didn't ask this person's permission but there's there's a, a, a Friend of ours, a member of our, our church, that she, uh, her granddaughters are with her all the time, and she posts pictures on Facebook of teaching. They're baking together or crafting together, doing things. And I look at those pictures, and it, it warms my heart. This is what a grandmother does right? this sharing and this showing, and there's just delight there. And, and this is what Jesus is describing this love. How does the Trinity work? It's, it's a father son relationship. Filled with love and, and the sharing and the, and the showing, this cooperation for the sake of love. Look at John fourteen thirty 31. Um, it is mutual. Uh, Jesus is speaking. I will not say much more to you for the, the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes, look, so that the world may learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. love, love. I don't know of any passage in the Bible that says the Spirit loves the Father or the Son, but look at John 16. I'm going to read some verses from John 16. Jesus again is speaking. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. And then the verse continues. He will glorify me. The Spirit will glorify me because it is from me that He will receive what He will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what He will make known to you. Think about this. The Father loves the Son, shares with the Son. The Son and the Father share with the Spirit and the Spirit shares with us. There's this mutual delight among the members of the Trinity and and sharing. The Spirit's chief goal in this church is to glorify the Son, to take what the Father has given to the Son and make it well known to all of us because the Trinity is a world of love. Now I want you to think with me about this for a minute. Let's think uh, theologically. Shall we do that? What was God doing before He made the universe? Before God made anything, what was God doing? Now, I'm not sure if he actually said it, but I've heard it attributed to Augustine, that Augustine answered the question this way. What was God doing before he made the universe? Augustine supposedly said he was making hell for people who ask such foolish questions. <laughs> but, actually, that's a good way to end a discussion, okay? If your children won't go to sleep at night and they're asking questions, don't say that to them, okay? Don't do that, but... but. Um, Actually, I think we we know what God was doing before He made the universe. He was delighting in Himself. He is a trinity of persons and He is completely satisfied in Himself. He's whole and He's complete. He's full of love. He was sharing and loving and delighting. He was not bored. He was not lonely. He didn't need anyone. He didn't need anything. He was supremely happy within Himself. Uh, Do you like it when your family gets together? Uh, we are we're almost at the end of the spring sports season. Almost done. And, and it's, it's nice we, when we're all home together and we can just be there together. Maybe, maybe when you're, you're home, your family's all home and together you, you play a favorite game or you watch a favorite movie, you pop popcorn, you snuggle on the couch, and you watch... Or maybe your family gets together on an annual basis. You gather with all your relatives for a family reunion. God is a family reunion in and within himself. And he's always happy to be at home. This uh, trinity within... This triunity within God is unique within Christianity. No other faith worships a God like this. And I think this is what makes this God superior to all other gods. Let's take, for example, here... Allah, the God of Islam. Um, Allah is not, he is clearly not the God of the Bible. Um, Allah, uh, it is a central tenet of Islam that Allah does not have a son. It's very clear in the Quran. But if you go and ask someone, a, a member of the Islamic faith, and you say to them, is Allah loving? They will say, oh yes he is. He is both loving and merciful. Then you ask, Okay, before he made the world, who did Allah love? And the answer to the question is, no one. Which means that love is not central to Allah's nature. Not like the God of the Bible. And in fact, if Allah is to be loving, he must have someone to love. And by that standard then, Allah needs love creation. But according to the Bible, God does not need creation. In in fact, creation is the overflow of the triune God's love. Why did God create? God created not because he needed us, but because it is the nature of love to spread and share and welcome people in. This is why Trinity by three is so good. Think about this here. In a relationship of two, relationships of two can very easily become closed. That's why we use the phrase, the third wheel, right? Relationships of two can very easily be closed. You're not welcome into a relationship of two. But a relationship of three, there is always room for more. You're always welcome in to a relationship of three. It's not a closed unit like a relationship of two sometimes can be. Why did God create? It's the overflow of the love within the Godhead. Why did God redeem us? Why does God rescue people from sin? Because it's the nature of love to welcome rebels home. Sky Jathani is a writer for Christianity Today. He wrote an article a few years ago about his experience at Cooperstown. Sky Jathani was invited a few years ago to Cooperstown, New York, for the Baseball Hall of Fame Induction ceremony. And he was there, and the night before the actual ceremony, they have a a reception, red carpet, invitation-only, VIP reception, and Sky Jathani was there. He got a picture with Cal Ripken, Jr., and he he spoke for a little bit with Tommy Lasorda. He said, Tommy Lasorda sits in the corner like some ancient ruler ruling over his domain. And he met Andre Dawson and Wade Boggs and Carlton Fisk, and and, uh, Sky Jathani, he said, I, I'm not really a very big baseball fan. In fact, there I was in this room of all these baseball greats, and I didn't even know who most of the players were. He said, I have friends, I have huge baseball fan, friends who would, would have done anything to get into the party. Jathani made it into the party because that year they inducted Deacon White, who was a superstar baseball athlete in the 1870s. And Jathani had married Deacon White's great-great-granddaughter. So they got invited to the VIP party at the Baseball Hall of Fame. The Trinity, think about this for a minute, the Trinity is a world of love. It is the ultimate in VIP parties. It's a community of love into which God invites all people. In fact, He has made it possible for you to enter into this Community of love. We human beings deserve to be in the love of the Trinity, as uh, even less than Sky Jathani belongs in the Hall of Fame. To be, because we, believe, we bring naturally to the party a lifelong history of sin, a heritage and a nature bent away from the love that is at the center of who God is. We are the cut off ones. We are not rightly related to God as good father but as judge. We don't deserve an invitation. We deserve to be cast out. No one crashes God's party. But the triune God has made it possible for you to come. According to the plan of God the Father, God the Son took to Himself a human nature, a perfect human nature. And He received the judgment that you and I deserved. And He died on the cross for us and rose again from the dead. And it is God the Spirit who opens your eyes so that you can see the wonder of God's plan and believe the good news that Jesus has paid the penalty that we owed. It's the plan. It's the invitation that has been Extended to everyone. When you turn and trust in Jesus by faith, you are invited into this community. C.S. Lewis, I think, used to talk about the dance of the Trinity and their great love for one another. Welcome in to this communion. If you're not a follower of Christ this morning, in Jesus' name, I can invite you to believe, to come into this world of love. Now, we have to finish this step. We have a final step here to make. With as much expedience as possible, we'll do so. Here's step number three. Ready? Christian love is marked by, I'm going to use two words, delight and discipleship. It's more than that, but central to this, to Christian love, delight and discipleship. I want you to follow me for a minute. I'm going to talk about the Godhead, and then I'm going to talk about how this translates to our love for one another. So within the Godhead, uh, the Father loves the Son and delights in the Son. Uh, We read from Matthew 4, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And this delight rolls over in the Godhead into glorifying. Look at John 17. After he's praying, after Jesus said this, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you for you granted authority over all people that he might might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So think here, in the Godhead, we have love, delight, we have delight, we have glory. You glorify the things you delight in. You do this, you, you know how you do this. You have pictures of your family, and I'm guessing that they're not hanging in the closet. The people that you love, you glorify. You love them, and you brag about them. Right Godhead, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, they glorify, they have brought, they, they showcase one another. Now we who are followers of jesus, how, how does that work in human beings? If this is the model, how does this work? We have to use different words a little bit because human beings are corrupted by sin, but I'm going to still use that word delight, delight, true love, real love finds joy in the beloved. What you see in the other person brings you joy, happiness. Joy not in what they do for you, but but in who they are in and of themselves. We who are followers of Jesus, we love one another because we see in one another the image of God. We see it even though marred by sin. We see evidence of the creative work of God. Sometimes it's easy to see. That's what young romantic love is about, right? Right? Young love, it's nothing but delight. I sometimes talk to dating couples and they agonize over how hard their relationship is. And I say to them at this point in time, I say, at this point in time, your relationship should be easy. It'll be hard later. It should be really easy now. If it's hard now, maybe, maybe you're not doing it right or something. Or maybe you should end this relationship. Sometimes this delight has to be cultivated. Cultivated. Old love, that delight has to be cultivated. You have to look for reasons to delight in one another. Some of you are so used to finding reasons to be disappointed. Or you remind yourself of all the resentments and failures. You have no room left in your life to cultivate any sort of delight. But I want to suggest to you this morning that true love has eyes that are wide open for reasons for delight. Find ways in which your spouse or find ways in which your friend models the goodness and grace of God. We move toward one another to see and delight in the goodness and the grace of God evident in the lives of other people. You have never met a dull person in your life because every single person is made in the image of God. You've never met a dull person. If you think you've met a dull person, you're not looking hard enough. Now we move from delight here to secondly we're going to talk about discipleship. We can't talk about glory in the same way among the Godhead, but we can talk about discipleship. And what I mean by discipleship, it starts with the letter D, that's convenient, but what I mean by this is intentionally cultivating this growth toward Christ likeness. You're working to encourage the one that you love to grow, to develop, to more accurately represent the goodness of God to show more evidences of God's grace. If the Father glorifies the Son, He puts God's glory on display. In your loving relationships, you encourage one another to move toward that glory. Tim Keller uses this phrase in his great book about uh, marriage, The Promise of the Gospel. He says, The promise of the Gospel is that someday we're going to be like Jesus. And he says, That's your future glory self. And as brothers and sisters in Christ as family members in your home, as spouses in your marriage, we are encouraging one another to move towards that future glory self. If I say I love you and God is my model, it means that I delight in you and that I'm committed to your growth, that I will pray for you and that I will speak to you and that I will sometimes admonish you and I will encourage you and I will push you toward Christ. That's the call of love. It's a call of love that's rooted in the Godhead himself, this triune God. We worship and serve the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we love one another for his sake. That's what we believe. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we come through your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we confess to you that as we think about these things, it is, it is mind-boggling. Help us not, Father, to be confused people, but help us to be people who are in awe of you, your greatness, your supremacy, your, your divine incomprehensibility. You have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed yourself to us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you would help us as we think about the love that is within the Trinity itself that we might move toward one another in that same love. Delight and sanctifying discipleship. Do that work in us, we pray, because we worship and serve you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask that you would if I have said something this morning that is confusing or inaccurate, that you would, by your kindness, help us to forget and help us to remember the greatness and the glory and the wonder of the triune God. We want to honor you in how we worship and live and pray and speak. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.